what your country can do for you. There's a last time I've got to be in the lead. The Giants have the Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning into episode 39 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. On this episode, we get to hear another record from a great collection of one of the best-known big bands there was. Plus, I always think of my parents as they floated across the dance floor to music like this. So... Let's get ready to once again hear from the king of the dance hall in volume 39, Glenn Miller Collection, part two. Say CC, written by Al Stillman, Ernesto Lucona, and Frankia Lubin, and was recorded January 26, 1940. 
The musicians on this album, by the way, are Bob Price, R.D. McMickle, and Lee Knowles on trumpet, Glenn Miller, Al Mastrin, and Paul Tanner on trombone, Hal McIntyre, Tex Beneke, Wilbur Schwartz, Stanley Aronson, and Al Klink on saxophones, Chummy McGregor on piano, Alan Roos on guitar, Rowlin Bundock on bass, and Maurice Pertil on drums. All right, why this album? Well, I introduced you to this collection in episode two of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. The album cover is the most unique in all of my dad's collection. I'll describe it in more detail shortly. But due to its padded thickness and its large oblong size, it always stuck out in this collection in more ways than one. It's an album I used to play in my youth a lot. It's probably also the collection where I really learned how to use the album changer spindle on the stereo. That's also why the collection is numbered so oddly. You'd put all five records on the spindle sides, one through five, then turn them all over after they were done playing to hear sides six through ten. But this combination of the two sides of this record really actually didn't bring many big Glenn Miller hits. So we will keep the tempo up because that's how my parents liked the music when they danced, but usually without the skips of this record. Caribbean Clipper, written by Jerry Gray and Sammy Gallup, 
recorded July 14th, 1942. All right, let's see how Discogs.com has this album listed. Glenn Miller and his orchestra, second pressing. It's on the RCA Victor label, LPT 6700. It's the Collector's Issue Series. It's a five-vinyl LP compilation released in Canada in 1956. It's of the jazz genre, and we are listening to sides two and nine. Now, we're going to hear some liner notes from jazz critic George Frazier. I read part of these before, so you get the second part now. Miller was the musical high priest of an era, and everybody, or nearly everybody, worshipped at his shrine. Whether one heard him over the air with the strains of Moonlight Serenade as a theme, or on a portable phonograph on a beach under the blazing sun of summer afternoons, or in the dance halls like the Rainbow Ballroom in Rock Springs, Wyoming, and the Sodbuster Club in Holdridge, Nebraska, or in the more collegiate setting of the Glen Island Casino. No matter where one heard him or under what circumstances, there was about him the special kind of magic that haunts, say, the pages of F. Scott Fitzgerald, pervasive, lingering, ineffably touching, and as evocative of one's youth as flexible flyers, the first snowfall, and the night before Christmas are of one's long-vanished childhood. For more than three years, his music said hello to young lovers wherever they were, and by way of phonograph records, it still does. All right, speaking of phonograph records, let's take a look to see what Discogs has valued this at. It has the same price, largest, smallest, medium price at $14.29. Found one on eBay for $39.99, and Amazon had a couple ranging from $40 to $80. My my dad's album condition, well, I'm going to say poor, the album cover itself, Probably because, mostly because, I should say, is because of this discoloration on the outside. This really should be a more brilliant white. The media also poor because several songs have major skips. In fact, you just heard one, and you can really tell this album collection was really played a lot in my household. And um, it looks like they were also on the automatic changer quite often together as well. So I'm going to value my dad's copy at eight dollars all right what are we having a wedding or something deadly nights here again and we hope you like our combination of something old new large and blue film something old japanese sandman What's 
the matter with me? I am awfully moody. Must my love affairs be like punch and Judy? I always walk with myself, talk with myself and my heart, and I agree. I'm not hard to take, so for heaven's sake, what's the matter with me? Something Bob, Benny Goodman's Let's Dance. a medley for you. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue, like Glenn said. Uh, those songs were Japanese Sandman, written by Raymond Egan and Richard Whiting. What's the Matter with Me, written by Sam Lewis and Terry Shand, that was Marion Hutton on vocals. Let's Dance, written by Frank Skinner. And Blue Room, written by Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart. It was broadcast January 24, 1940. By the way, Tommy Mack replaced Al Mastrin on trombone on that piece. Okay, let's learn more about this band leader than we did back in episode number two. Glenn Miller's influence on the history of jazz represents a contradiction. Though many jazz enthusiasts disapproved of his disciplined, unorthodox approach, Miller's music experienced undeniable popularity and success with 1940s audiences and still charms listeners today. Some of the critics, said Miller in 1940, point their fingers at us and charge us with forsaking real jazz. He then concluded it's all in what you define as real jazz. Regardless of criticism he encountered, Miller devoted his life to crafting enjoyable music, aiming not to appease his critics, but to entertain his listeners. Immediately after graduating high school in 1921, Glenn Miller entered the Boyd Center Band, the first of a series of musical groups he would join. He later quit this group to attend the University of Colorado in 1923, but soon abandoned his college career to pursue his love of music. Over the next years, he moved to Los Angeles and became a member of Ben Pollock's band, then came to New York City in 1928, working as a trombonist and musical arranger. At this time, Miller married Helen Berger, his college sweetheart. Miller then worked for the Dorsey Brothers Orchestra, organized an orchestra for Ray Noble, and studied music theory and composition with Joseph Schillinger. Miller first recorded under his own name in 1934, while still working with the Noble Orchestra. Then in 1937, he tried to form his own band, which gained little popularity. 
After disbanding and then reorganizing his group, Miller finally found success in 1938 when Glenn Miller and his orchestra got an engagement at the Glen Island Casino in New Rochelle, New York. The record-breaking crowd of 1800 cemented the rise to fame for Glenn Miller and his orchestra. From there, he started to record records such as Tuxedo Junction, which sold 115,000 copies the first week, and his orchestra got a performance engagement at Carnegie Hall. In 1942, RCA Victor presented Miller with the first gold record for Chattanooga Choo Choo, which has gone on to be one of the most successful songs and recordings in the history of music. Miller's recording was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1996. And we, of course, still have three more albums left, so we will learn plenty more about Glenn Miller. And now, a song you've heard in a previous episode. But we're not going to play the entire 14-minute version here. There's the unmistakable melody of Rhapsody in Blue, 
written by George Gershwin. That was recorded July 16th, 1942. All right, time now for this episode's interesting side note. Thanks to the U.S. Army and them being famous for not communicating, it took decades before anyone understood how Glenn Miller's plane might have been lost at sea. In 2014, a researcher claims he can put to rest decades of conjecture surrounding the mysterious disappearance of big band leader Glenn Miller during World War II. Long overlooked military documents indicate the small plane in which Miller was likely traveling when he disappeared in 1944 probably crashed in the English Channel after fuel intakes froze. That's according to Dennis Sprague, a senior consultant to the Glenn Miller Archive at the University of Colorado Boulder. The icing took three forms, engine icing, carburetor icing, and induction ice, Sprague says. And that's the kind of ice that forms on the fuel tanks and fuel lines feeding fuel to the engine. On the day he went missing, December 15, 1944, Miller, an Army major, is believed to have boarded a UC-64A Norseman in Bedfordshire, England, as a passenger. The plane was bound for France, where Miller was planning a performance for Allied troops. Sprague has penned a book on the subject of Miller's disappearance called Resolved. Sprague says the plane was flying low because of poor visibility. When fuel lines froze, the engine stopped, giving the plane's pilot about eight seconds to react before it plunged into the water. Because the plane was constructed of mostly lightweight materials, it probably disintegrated on impact, killing those aboard instantly, Sprague says. Sprague cites military documents to back his claims, some of which have been in the public realm for decades but were previously uninspected by Glenn Miller researchers, he says. Another theory, one that's more widely accepted, is that the plane Miller was flying in was destroyed by friendly fire. That theory was first proposed in the 1980s as intriguing evidence about the Norseman plane came to light. It was discovered that 138 planes returning from a aborted Allies bombing raid disposed of their bombs over the English Channel, and the theory is that one hit Miller's plane, causing it to crash. Citing U.S. Army Air Force records, Sprague says the timing of when the planes were over the channel rules out that theory. More likely, he says, is that another plane was journeying across the channel at the time the bombers were returning. It appears to be a case of mistaken identity that the Norseman was in the area at the time. Miller never arrived at his destination and traces of the Norseman and its passengers were never found. Nine days later, BBC and CBS News reported stated that the plane and occupants, including Miller, were missing. Military officials had answers about engine ice problems provided in reports from the time, but those answers were not shared with the general public, Sprague says. He launched his investigation in 2009 at the behest of Miller's son, Stephen Davis Miller, who passed away in 2012. Steve was pretty much fed up with having spent most of his adult life dealing with conspiracy theories, Sprague says. And he said, I trust you to take the ball in this thing and go with it. And if you want to do it, will you please go study the situation, go anywhere you need to go, open any files you need to open, ask for permission to go anywhere you can, but find out what really happened. <clears throat> Thanks to Colorado Public Radio for that bit of information. All right, next up. The results of a boxing match.
for the Count, written by Bill Finnegan and broadcast July 24th, 1940. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Like I said, not many Glenn Miller hits on this album, but still some fantastic recordings. And I still love pulling this collection out now as much as I did as a kid all those years ago. So, last but not least, one of the coolest song titles I've ever heard. Horn Jive, written by Eddie Durham, recorded June 2nd, 1939. And there you have selections from the RCA Victor Collector's issue. So thanks for tuning into Volume 39, Glenn Miller Collection, Part 2, however you did. 
If you want more information about this podcast, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 40, Doc Severinsen and Friends. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. Thank you.